It's a psalm that we'll actually look at uh, this afternoon, our afternoon sermon, and a psalm that as we look at Job this morning has uh, many parallels with Job's experience in uh, chapters 16 and 17. That's our scripture reading this morning from the book of Job, just before the psalms. Job chapters 16 and 17. This is Job's response to Eliphaz, who we heard from last week. Remember, that was the second of Eliphaz's speeches uh, where he said in chapter 15, uh, basically, that Job's theology of undeserved suffering, Job's uh, continued insistence that he was suffering not because of his own sin, that that whole uh, approach, that theology of the cross, if you will, undermined piety and undermined tradition. That was Eliphaz's argument in chapter 15, and then in the latter half of the chapter, he insisted in his parable of the wicked man that Job was a deceitful, trouble-causing hypocrite who drinks injustice like water. That was Eliphaz's comfort in chapter 15, and so now Job is going to tell him that he is a miserable comforter, that Eliphaz's theological system in which the cross is denied offers no comfort, that our only comfort in life and in death is in Christ. But Eliphaz denies the man of the cross, he despises the man of the cross, and so gives no comfort. So now in Job 16 and Job 17, Job is going to tell him that, then he's going to show us where true comfort is found in Christ. Uh, Job 16, beginning at verse 1, then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you. And shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. 
O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely, even now, my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children, will fail. He has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. But please, come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Congregation, as I said, we learned something in this passage about how not to offer miserable comfort. We also learned something about Christ in whom is found true comfort. But before we get to either of those things, um, there, there is also the issue of what we're to do with some of the language that we find on Job's lips in chapter 16. And perhaps you noticed some of that as we were reading where Job uh, says that God has torn him in his wrath, says that God has gnashed his teeth at him, that he has shattered him, that he's taken him by the neck and dashed him to pieces, set him up as a target, and surrounded him with archers. And we wonder, how is it that the same man who says these things can later be vindicated by God in chapter 42, where God says that Job has spoken rightly of him? How can this be? I think part of the answer to that question, part of of what's going on here, is that the language Job here uses of God, God elsewhere uses of himself. Hosea chapter 5 and chapter 6, God says that he will be like a lion to Israel and tear them 
Isaiah chapter 8, he will shatter them. Lamentations 3, he will bend his bow and set up his target against them. He will tear his people to pieces and make them desolate. And so in one sense, Job is not saying anything unique. The Old Testament often uses this kind of language. But it's interesting It's always in the context of what God will do to his people Israel in exile. You might remember we saw at the beginning of the book how in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all of the ruin and misery that comes upon Job parallels the very covenant curses that are listed in Deuteronomy 28. The destruction of his land, the loss of his livestock, bereavement of his children, bodily sores and boils. Uh, Some of it is even given to us in Job 1 and 2 in the precise language of Deuteronomy 28. The curses that will come upon Israel in exile have come upon Job in this book. And the way that God will later restore him at the end of the book uh, is described in the very language of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Where in Deuteronomy 30 verse 3, it it speaks of God restoring his people from exile. And this is a bit clearer in other uh, translations like the ESV. But it, it actually says at the end of Job that God will restore their fortunes. Or that God restores Job's fortunes. That's the precise language of Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, where God promises that when his people are in exile and they cry out to him, he will restore their fortunes. And so Job's suffering and Job's restoration are described in the terms of the exile. And so here in Job chapter 16, we shouldn't be surprised that God's wrath is spoken of in a way that sounds a lot like God's wrath against Israel in exile. God is bringing Job into exile to suffer. Yet not for his own sin. In fact, because Job has not done anything to deserve this suffering, and because God will later restore him, Job becomes a source of hope for the righteous remnant who will later suffer in exile, though not for their own sin, but because of the sins of their brothers. As Job presses on in faith, confident that he will be vindicated, so God's righteous remnant can later do the very same thing as they draw comfort from the story of Job. That's one of the themes that we see in this book. But even as Job becomes a sort of parable of Israel in exile, he also becomes a prophecy of the true Israelite, Jesus, who will suffer in exile outside the camp, Hebrews chapter 13, though not because of his own sin, but because of the sins of his brothers. Job's captivity is ultimately a shadow of Christ's. And because it points forward to Christ with whom we are united as we too suffer in exile in this world, as we heard in 1 Peter 1 in our greeting, that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. As we too are united to Christ in his suffering, we too can draw comfort from the book of Job. Job's story, as we've been seeing throughout, points ahead to that of Christ. And we are united to Christ. And so his story also becomes instructive for us. 
And even his laments that we read of in chapter 16 and chapter 17 become, in a sense, our own. So that's the first thing that we look at this morning, Job's lament, his lamenting his sad situation. Now that points ahead to Christ and also our experience in Christ. Job laments his sad situation. We see that in the first 17 verses of chapter 16. First, his sad situation with regard to his friends. We see that in the first five verses. And then his sad situation with regard uh, to his relationship with God. And so in verses uh, 1 to 5, Job gives this summary of his friend's counsel. Where he says, miserable comforters are you all. You remember they set out back in chapter 2, verse 11, to come and mourn with Job and comfort him. That's the way that Job 2.11 described the mission of these friends. But Job is saying, you have failed in your mission. You have not brought me comfort, nor have you really mourned with me, but your insistence on giving me an answer to my suffering, your, your quick fixes, your applying the categories of guilt and pardon to every human problem, your defending tradition at the cost of my own well-being has not brought me comfort. Job reminds us that any system that is absent the cross Any system that lacks compassion, any system that is built on tradition and not the gospel cannot and will not bring comfort. But their Christless comfort is actually what amounts to windy words without end. Remember, that was the accusation that Eliphaz gave to uh, to Job last week. That his words were like the, the east wind filling his stomach and then coming out. And Job is saying, no, unprofitable, useless, unbecoming words are the kinds of words that you have spoken to me that offer no comfort. So he goes on and and, and he says, you know, if I were in your place, I, I could speak as you do. I could do the same thing and heap up words against you and I could shake my head at you and wag my finger at you. But I wouldn't. Job says, no, I would strengthen you with my mouth. The the comfort of my lips would actually relieve your grief. Job recognizes that the doctrine he has been proclaiming, the the doctrine of Christ that that he has been groping for in the darkness at the end of chapter 9 and the end of, of chapter 14, that that is ultimately what brings true comfort. But he says, that's not what you've given to me. And so even though you have made an appointment to, to, to gather to come and comfort me, I'm not feeling very comforted. In fact, you've made me feel worse. Remember we said before that many commentators point out that one of the worst of the afflictions that Job has to endure is the affliction of his friends who come to comfort him. And here Job is lamenting. Lamenting this affliction of his comfortless friends. But then he also laments the fact that not only do his friends seem to be offering him no comfort, we see in verses 6 and following, he feels like God doesn't seem to be giving him any comfort either. We see this in, in this section where he says that God has worn him out. 
Verse 7, that God has made desolate all his company. We see at the end of verse 7, that's a reference to his whole household being made desolate, his family being taken away, all ten of his children uh, dead in a day. He says that God tears him in his wrath and hates him, even calls God his adversary in verse 9, which elsewhere in the book is a word that's used of Satan. Here Job seems to to apply it to God. Not that he's calling God Satan, but just as Satan is the enemy, it feels to him as if God has become his enemy. Uh, There's aspects of what is going on that Job does not fully understand. He doesn't understand the role that Satan has to play in this, but but he is expressing what he's feeling in the moment. He says that God has delivered him to the ungodly. Perhaps that's a reference to his friends who he's been given over to, but more than that, he's become a byword among all people. He'll speak later on, I think it's in chapters 29 and 30, of how he who once was this great and glorious king-like figure now is despised by drunkards, despised by those who who live in caves, despised by the young children, even the children of the poor and the outcast. Job is mocked even by them. He has been turned over to the hands of the wicked. It says that God has set him up as a target and has surrounded him with archers. He's broken him apart. And it's not difficult, or it shouldn't be difficult for us to see in all of this how Job is, is a type of Christ. How all of these very things that Job describes of himself in chapter 16 will, in fact, come upon Christ, who is literally torn open by God's wrath, verse 9. Struck on the cheek, verse 10. Notice the parallels to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 50, where they gape at Christ with their mouth and they strike him on the cheek. Job, as a prophet, by the Spirit of Christ, is poetically describing the suffering that has come upon him in a way that anticipates and foreshadows the suffering that will come upon Christ. You think of uh, Psalm 2, where it says that the nations will, will gather together against the Lord's anointed. We see something like that in verse 10, where they gather together against him, and God gives him up to the ungodly, just as the nations in Psalm 2 will plot in rage against the Lord and his anointed, and Christ will be given over to wicked pilots. Christ will become the one, the, the target at whom God points his arrow. The one whose body will be broken, even as we remember this afternoon in the Lord's Supper. The suffering that is described in Job chapter 16 is a shadow of what will happen to Christ. And the number of allusions to this very passage and the prophecies of Christ's suffering confirm it. Even in verse 2, as as he laments his miserable comfort, as he foreshadows Christ, who will say in Psalm 69, as we sang a moment ago, as we'll see this afternoon, I looked for someone to take pity, but found none, for comforters, but found none. And all of this leads him to say, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin, and I have laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Again, here the allusion in Psalm 69 back to this, where the psalmist 
says, I am weary with crying and my throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are without number. Christ will quote that and apply it to himself. And yet here in Job 16, this also is Job's experience. All this, even though he says in verse 17 that he has no violence in his hand. Even though he says in verse 17 that his prayer is pure. Still yet, all of this suffering comes upon him. Though he has no violence in his hand and his prayer is pure. And in this too, he foreshadows the perfectly righteous one with literally no violence in his hand who would tell Peter to put down the sword and then heal the the ear of Malchus. In all this, he foreshadows Christ, the perfectly righteous one with no violence in his hand and whose prayer is as pure as it gets, who even prays for those who torment him. But he would suffer alone. He'd suffer alone at the hand of God and at the hands of men. And what this means for us is that as we are united to Christ and called, as we heard last week from Philippians chapter 3 in that New Testament reading that we read with Job 15, as we are called to share with Christ in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to him in his death, that we might sometimes feel this way too. Though we seem to have no violence in our hand and our prayer is pure, everyone around us seems to be either against us or has abandoned us. Christ says a disciple is not above his master nor a servant above his, or a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they treat me like this, they will treat you like this. And so the individual believer The church throughout the world, the persecuted church in many places may expect to suffer without cause, though their prayer is pure, and to receive either miserable comfort or no comfort from those around them who instead gather together against them and gape at them with their mouth. Thankfully, God does not leave us there. Thankfully, God does not leave us At verse 16, our eyes flushed from weeping. He doesn't leave us at verse 2 with miserable comforters. As we move into the next section of this passage, we're assured that our cry will not go unheard. Verses 1 to 17, Job laments his sad situation, but in verses 18 to 21, Job confesses his faith. He confesses his faith that the earth will not cover over his blood and his cry will not have a resting place, but instead of having a resting place down on earth, it will ascend to heaven. Like Abel in Genesis 4, his blood will cry out for vindication and God will hear his cry and take notice of his affliction. That's what Job is longing for. In verse 18, and he says in verse 19, even now my witness is in heaven. And he says, he who testifies for me is on high. That's how we could translate that last line of verse 19 where in our Bibles it says that his evidence is on high. Really, that's his witness. The one who testifies for him, the one who brings forth this evidence in his favor. Job is here confident that he will receive help from on high. And along with this, also help from below. That's what he asks for in verse 21. 
Or even though his friends on earth scorn him, he says, oh, that one might plead for me as a son of man pleads for his friends. Again, that word neighbor at the end of, of verse 21 is friends. Job believes that God will provide a witness who is both a son of man and from heaven who will stand in his defense with the authority of heaven and yet with the love and sympathy of a friend. If you were here maybe a month or so ago when we looked at the end of chapter 9, you remember how Job longed for a mediator in verses 32 and 33 of chapter 9 who could lay his hand both on God and also on Job. At the very beginning of that chapter, he said, how can man be right with God? How can I be righteous before him? He recognized the great distance between him and God, and he knew that his only hope in having peace with God was for someone to come who was both God and man. Someone who somehow could identify with them both and reconcile them. Bridge the gap between them. And Job, back at the end of chapter 9, did not fully understand what he was asking for. But throughout the book, as we trace this theme of a mediator, we can see this this growing confidence that God will provide a mediator. It first came up in chapter 5, verse 1, where Eliphaz denied any possibility of a mediator. By the end of chapter 9, Job mentions it, and and then he says, but this is probably just, just some wishful thinking that won't ever happen. But then here, by the time we get to chapter 16, he he is confident that he will have a witness. And by the time we get to chapter 19, he will thunder those famous words, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall at last stand upon the earth and I will see God. We see this growing confidence that God will provide a mediator and that that mediator will be both God and man. Like Boaz in the book of Ruth, who is a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, one who, who uh, has affinity with him, who, who shares a, a family identity with him, and yet who is also God himself. This is Job's confidence that has been growing throughout the book. And Job did not fully understand what he was saying. Job didn't fully understand how all of this would be fulfilled, but that's the way that it often was with the Old Testament prophets. In fact, fact, uh, Peter says that in 1 Peter 1. That they did not fully understand God's purposes. They did not fully understand that which they prophesied, and yet they spoke it, and they held on to what they did know in faith. And that's what we see Job doing. Speaking, Yet through a glass darkly of a mediator who will come, not understanding fully what will happen, how that will come about, but like the Old Testament prophets, speaking even through a glass darkly and holding on to what he did know in faith. And we've mentioned this once or twice, but James chapter 5 will actually count Job among the Old Testament prophets, I think largely because of passages like this and passages like Job 19 where he speaks very clearly of the Christ to come. Though he didn't have the clearest perception of him, he spoke of Christ. And that, beloved, is what gave Job hope in the midst of sadness. The person and work of Christ. 
So we see here that true comfort ultimately comes from Christ. It does not come from the religious system of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who will not only lay his hand upon Job, but will replay all of Job's suffering to an even greater degree. Being without anyone to comfort him, even his own father in a sense, as he'll cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People will gape at him with their mouth and strike him on the cheek. They will mock him. They will taunt him. They will assume that he deserves the treatment that's come upon him. The metaphorical arrows that were aimed at Job will pierce into Christ's side and he will lay his head in the dust. Chapter 17, he will be made a byword among the people. Verse 6. They will spit in his face. Verse 6, and, and his eyes will grow dim because of his sorrow. He will be the true man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men, acquainted with grief. And that is Job's only hope. That's our only hope. That when you feel as if your face is flushed from weeping and on your eyelids is the shadow of death, even though you have no violence in your hands and your prayer is pure, you can be confident that you have a witness in heaven. That you have an advocate, a mediator, who will plead your case as one pleads for a friend and will do so with a perfect sympathy as we heard from Hebrews 4 in our call to worship because he has been in your place because he is not unacquainted with your grief, but knows it full well. As one pastor said, there is not one note that can strike in your humanity that does not sound a sympathetic chord in his exalted humanity. The earth will not cover your blood. Injustices that you endure will not go unnoticed. Your cry, like Job's, will not have a resting place, but it will rise to heaven, and your father will hear, and your sympathetic high priest will intercede. This, beloved, is our only hope, that Christ stands between us and God as our friend that he becomes the man of sorrows so that in our sorrow we might know that we are not alone. And in your darkest trials, when it feels like those around you are miserable comforters, this may be your confession. My witness is now in heaven. The Son of Man pleads for me as a friend. Which, of course, doesn't mean that all of the sorrow will just go away. As verse 21 gives way to verse 22, where Job again laments. But as we've seen throughout the book of Job, that oftentimes is the experience of the believer. That having the hope that Job does in verses 19 to 21 does not mean that there will not be sadness and grief. I was reading 
last couple days through Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression, and and he makes this point over and over and over that a Christian is not one who is singing all the day, but that it's possible for a Christian to to be depressed. He he speaks in it of, of the miserable Christian and says, doubts are not incompatible with faith. He says, the Christian is not one who has become immune to what is happening all around him, but grief and sorrow are things to which the Christian too is subject. And we see this very clearly in Job. A believer, in fact, God's champion, who nevertheless says, my spirit is broken. Because true faith and honest lament are not mutually exclusive but in fact belong together. So we see as Job laments and yet nevertheless holds to his way. Doing so in chapter 17 with a broken spirit, but also with clean hands. Our third point, Job holds to his way, doing so with a broken spirit, but also clean hands. And we see this broken spirit in verses 1 to 8 where Job says right at the beginning there in verse 1, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished. He goes on to speak, I think it's in verse 6, of how he has become a byword of the people and has become as one in whose faces men spit. He says his eyes grow dim because of his sorrow, his members are like shadows. That's what we see in the first several verses of, of chapter 17. But then he says... In verse 9, yet the righteous will hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. When it says that the righteous will hold to his way, that means Job, the righteous one, the blameless one, who's introduced to us in 1 verse 1 and 1 verse 8 and, and 2 verse 3, the righteous and blameless one, Job, is going to continue on the same course that he has been on ever since chapter 1. He is described as one who fears God and shuns evil, which in chapter 28 is the very definition that's given of wisdom. Wisdom is to fear God and shun evil. Wisdom is to accept from God's hand both good and bad and yet refuse to curse him. But to say as Job does in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will trust in him. And so Job here continues to hold on to the way of wisdom. And what enables him to to, uh, hold on to this way of wisdom, what enables him to do this, is that even though his spirit is broken and his days are extinguished, what allows him nevertheless to hold on to the way of wisdom is the steadfast hope that we see in his confession at the end of chapter 16. Trusting in our heavenly mediator, Trusting in the one who is our friend, who pleads our case, interceding for us at the Father's right hand is what allows us to press on and hold on to God even when it feels as if our spirit is broken. Trusting, verse 3, that this mediator will lay down a pledge for us. Indeed, will lay down his own life as a pledge for us. Job shows us what to do when it feels like we have been given over to death. Job shows us what to do when it feels like people are gathered together against you, gaping at you with with their mouths, and you have become their target. 
You confess the one who is your advocate. You confess the one whose crimson blood has guaranteed that your blood will not be covered over. You confess the one whose cries of anguish have guaranteed that yours will not go unheard and whose broken spirit guarantees that yours will be restored. Holding on to the way of wisdom does not mean that things are going to get better right now. In fact, as we see with Job, it may make you a target. But holding on to the way of wisdom and confessing your faith in the God-man who has become your mediator, the man of sorrows who can sympathize with you in your sorrows, will make it bearable. It will make it so that you can bear your cross with clean hands. And verse 9 will make you stronger and stronger as God will give you the strength that you need to persevere. But once again, that won't make the trials go away. Because immediately after the the, the clean hands and becoming stronger and stronger in verse 9, it's more sorrow in verses 10 to 16. Verse 10, we see again the absence of anyone to give comfort Verse 11, he speaks of the desires of his heart being broken off. Verses 12 to 16, he speaks of of, uh, death being his home and darkness his next of kin. He says, where is my hope? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? And so Job uh, still sounds pretty hopeless as this speech of his comes to a close. And yet his speech, or his hope has not been extinguished, it's only been eclipsed. It's not been extinguished because he will keep on going. It's been eclipsed for a moment, yes, but he will keep on pressing on. He will keep on speaking. He will keep on holding to his way with clean hands and confessing his faith in his Redeemer. We'll see it again in chapter 19. And the reason he can still have this hope The reason he can still have this hope is because even if he does go down to the grave, even if he is buried in the darkness, even there, his mediator will go too. Crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Even if Job is buried in the grave, even there, his mediator will go too. And Jesus, verse 14, will say to the worm, you are my mother, as he confesses in Psalm 22, verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Job has a heavenly mediator who is able to identify with him in every aspect of his suffering. Job has a heavenly mediator who will go into exile for him, being cast out of God's presence, suffering outside the camp, outside the city gates will go into exile for him and suffer the very curses of Deuteronomy 28. Who, No matter how bad Job's suffering gets, is able to sympathize with him. And we have that same mediator, who no matter how bad our suffering gets, is able to sympathize with us. And so in the midst of whatever sorrow you bring with you this morning, Your only hope, beloved, is the man of sorrows himself. Our only hope in the midst of sorrow, Job 16 instructs us, is the man of sorrows 
himself. And so this passage is confronting us with the question, is that where you are placing your trust? As you've come here this morning, as you're listening this morning, is the mediator who is both God and man, who has become our friend, Jesus Christ, is that where you are placing your trust in the midst of of the difficulties and circumstances that you face in this life? Because you cannot place it in your circumstances. Job's only seem to be getting worse. Job shows us that you cannot place it in other people. Job has no one to give him comfort. You can't place it in your own resolve and strength or or your own personal piety. But there is only one place that you can place your trust, and that is in the one who pleads your case as a man pleads for his friend. And who is also now in heaven as your witness, the man of sorrows, the God-man, and your friend. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your word you give us these little shadows and pictures pointing forward to the Christ to come who would experience hell for us and feel the full fury of your wrath for us. Who would experience the abandonment of his friends for us. Even on the cross, the forsakenness of his father. Lord, as we see this shadow in the story of Job, we confess what a mighty redeemer we have, what a faithful friend we have standing in heaven as our witness. As we look at the friends of Job, we see in them our own reflection and the ways that we fail to be a friend to others in their suffering, the way that we fail and and offer miserable comfort But as we we see that, we also see this little outline of Christ, the true friend, the one who stands in heaven and pleads for us as a man pleads for his friend. And so, Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that the one who you promised all the way back in Genesis 3, the one who you show forth in type and shadow all throughout the Old Testament, even here in Job, that he has come and he is our advocate and our mediator. We thank you, Lord, that in him you give full provision for our weakness. And we pray, Lord, that whatever suffering you may call us to share with him in this life, that you would make us confident by your word and spirit that he who has gone before us now stands as our advocate and friend. We pray that you would help us to confess that with confidence holding on to our way with clean hands. We pray in Jesus' name.